This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brock. Here are a couple scenarios for you. Some of them may sound familiar. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. You hear the school bus rumbling up the block, and your 7-year-old has not even begun to get dressed. Your 4-year-old returns from a play date in tears. Tommy hit me, she sobs, and broke my new toy. Or an important client calls you at home, and in the middle of your conversation, your 6-year-old asks you loudly to help find his shoes, even though you've told him a 100 times not to interrupt you when you're on the phone. And just a couple of days before the weekend, your 9-year-old announces that she's not going with you to visit relatives on Sunday. My teacher said I cheated on a test, but I didn't, says your 11-year-old. How often do your kids argue over toys, computer time, video games, or other possessions, and how frequently do they fight with you, with each other, over anything and everything? How often do they create tension in the house because they don't listen or they won't do what you want to and they talk back? Do you feel as if you've tried everything and nothing has worked? Well, if you're looking for a different way to handle situations like these, this show is for you. Because a ton of research shows that kids who can think through and successfully solve everyday problems for themselves have fewer behavioral problems and do better in school than kids who can't think that way. And in this show, we're going to be helping you learn how to teach your kids how to think, not what to think. Most of my family, they never graduated high school, so I'm trying to break that barrier. My daughter, Brooklyn, was also a motivation for me to go back to school. Every day after work, went straight to school, and it paid off. At age 26, Kareem finished his high school diploma. I could not have done it alone. I see the future is really bright for me. No one gets a diploma alone. If you're thinking of finishing your high school diploma, you have help. Find free adult education classes near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by the Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brock, the founder of MrDad.com, and my guest for this part of today's show is Myrna Shure, who's the author of Thinking Parent, Thinking Child, Turning Everyday Problems into Solutions. It's the second edition and much updated. Myrna, thanks for joining us, or I should say rejoining us. You were on the show quite a while ago. Well, it's a pleasure to be back with you, Armin. It's fun talking about parenting with you. Well, it's fun talking about parenting with you, too. You've got a, a unique perspective on all of this. And want to have you start off talking a little bit about executive function, since that's, that's a, a phrase that gets thrown around a lot, and you deal with it a lot in this book. And uh, help, help us kind of get a, a little bit of a background information about what that is. Well, executive functioning is a, a term that includes uh, several skills. Um, one of the most important ones is ability to inhibit emotions uh, and uh, control uh, your impulses. Uh, so let's say a child wants a toy from another child, and uh, you know he can either react impulsively uh, without thinking uh, and just grab the toy or hit the child or do whatever he feels he has to do to get the toy immediately, uh, uh, and or he can control his 
uh, impulses and think about, you know, more positive ways to get what he wants without negative consequences. Uh, another one is if he can't have what he wants, he gets very upset uh, emotionally, has a temper tantrum, uh, can't control his emotions, uh, which is lack, a lacking that aspect of executive functioning. And uh, there's uh, other aspects to it, but those are, I think, the two mm-hmm. most important ones for parents to really try to uh, guide. Well, where, uh, for, when, yeah. when is the appropriate time to start paying attention to this stuff with your kids as a parent? Because obviously an, an infant is not going to be able to do any of these things. So right. when when is it reasonable to expect that your child is going to have some or develop some skills, and, and when can you start helping to instill those well, skills? Well, you can start helping children probably as soon as they have any understanding of language, uh, you know, starting around two. Uh, but you can, uh, the way you treat infants has a lot to do with how they have a need to uh, release negative emotions or act in a way that they feel frustrated. So what we do is we uh, play games with puppets and uh, have children uh, enjoy the process of learning these skills. And one of the things we do is play with the word same and different in fun ways. And uh, you can do this as early as age two, uh, but we start in our, uh, you know, by, by three or four, uh, all kids can uh, respond to this. And, you know, you can just point to your nose and say, this is, this is my nose, and, and then point to your nose again and say, I just pointed to the same thing, uh, and then point to something different. And, you know, go around the house and point to things that are the same and different mm-hmm. until kids can tell you. And then they have fun with those words. And then when they're having a temper tantrum, Instead of yelling at the child and making him feel more frustrated and angry, you can just simply say, can you think of a different way to tell me how you feel? Uh, Ah, And the word different rings a fun bell. And we play games with uh, uh, several different word pairs and uh, helping children think about how they can uh, uh, you know, get what they want or cope with right. frustration when yeah. they can't have what they want. All right, so g- give us another word pair. I was that was really great because I was I was thinking as you were saying that. All right, I, I want to ask what's the connection here between same and different. But that's great. So what's a different way? So what, what's another word pair? Well, another word pair that you can start when children are very young is is and is not. Uh, this is a chair. It is not, uh, and most kids will say something like table or something related, and they say, oh, let's have some fun with this. Uh, this is a chair. It is not a balloon. What else is it not? And then uh, kids will walk around the house. Some kids will walk around on their own and go, this is not a a, a, a giraffe. This is not a, a movie theater. <laughs> you know, Kids yeah. will start having a lot of fun with this. And then when they're, um, you know, let's say, again, using the same example of grabbing a toy or doing something you don't want them to do, uh, you can say, is what you're doing a good idea or not a good idea? And the word not rings a fun bell. And then you can combine the word pairs and say, if it's not a good idea, can you think of something different that is a good idea? And they love combining those word pairs with thinking about what they're doing. 
and um, you know you can give children puppets and let the puppets tell you you know what is and is not a good idea and I you know and then we get into how people feel uh, you know uh, if you hit him uh, how do you think he'll feel what might happen next might and maybe is another word there uh, you know it might rain today it might not rain today uh, you know what might happen next if Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we we have all kinds of examples of yeah. word pairs. All right. Well, and let me let me stop here for just a second because I I'm very curious about the next part of this or the most important part of it really, which is how does this play out? Are kids who are learning these word pairs and other ones like it and that particular approach are they different than other kids who are not? In terms of their ability to solve problems, because I, mean, I could see that this could be a really fun thing to do, but you know, what's, is why what, is it what, important? Right, exactly. Yeah, well, that's obviously a very important question. Why do we bother to teach kids these word pairs when children can solve their own problems? And uh, into the book, we have a lot of examples of helping children uh, resolve their own problems. Uh, they're much more likely to carry out solutions that have less negative consequences in light of how the other child or parent or other adult or whoever they're having the problem with feels in light of what might happen next. If they don't like what might happen next, um, what can else can they do uh, that won't uh, make somebody angry or sad? And how you feel. You know, children need to know that somebody cares how they feel, too. Uh, What we found in over 30 years of research now is that children who are good at this, good problem solvers, uh, show fewer behaviors that are, uh, you know, negative uh, aggression, uh, over-emotionality, inability to, you know, get along well with others, uh, social inhibition, too. Uh, and most importantly, it turns out, children who are uh, pro-social, who care about other people and how they feel. And these behaviors, if children don't outgrow them or have the skills to help them cope with, with the way they feel that gets them through the problems that they have, right. uh, that can be very high risk for later, more serious problems when they get into late right. middle school and high school. All right, and so there, a, a quick question, because we're coming up on a break, but how, how does this help them solve the problems on their own? It sounds like the, the parents who are helping with these word pairs and things like that are, are facilitating a, a way of thinking about things differently, but we're hoping that they're going to be able to start doing this on their own, right? Right, uh, and how do they come up with, with their own solutions? Um, you know, children gather uh, information uh, all the time. And it turns out what we found in our research is you don't have to tell. By the time children are four years old, uh, most children, I should say, um, have heard suggestions and explanations and, uh, you know, you should do this because if you don't, you know, that will happen. They've heard those a thousand times. The thousandth and first time isn't going to change anything. And we found that when they tell us, and I can give you, you know, lots of anecdotes in this, 
uh, when they tell us their solution, they're much more likely to carry it out than when we suggest, explain, uh, and you know, tell them what to do and why. And it's a process of thinking more than a content. It's how they think more than what they think that guides behavior. I'm talking with Myrna Schur, who's the author of Thinking Parent, Thinking Child, Turning Everyday Problems into Solutions. It's the updated second edition. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking to Myrna. We're going to start getting into some of the specifics in the book. We'll talk about dealing with feelings and emotions and how to handle and prevent problems and maybe a little bit about nurturing relationships as well. And by the way, if you miss any part of the show, you can always catch up with it on MrDad.com. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more on our website, yougottobekidding.org. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Myrna Schur, who's the author of Thinking Parent, Thinking Child, Turning Everyday Problems into Solutions. Myrna, so let's let's get into some of the, the specifics here. We've talked about the word pairs, which I think are really great. And how do we start, for example, with stress? I mean, kids get stressed about homework. Even kids who are are five and six years old, we're hearing about that they're they're stressed about the pressure that's put on them or expectations. And how do we, first of all, recognize stress in a child, and then how do we help them, uh, particularly young ones, deal with it? Well, you can tell a child is stressed by uh, he doesn't want to talk about something, his posture changes, his uh, facial expressions change. Uh, it becomes pretty obvious that his whole mannerisms change. And sometimes it's hard to discern what the reason is. It could be a, a lot of different reasons. And then you can start by asking him, did something happen in school today uh, that made you feel feel uh, upset about something? Uh, and rather than assuming you know and trying to you know give him suggestions on what to do, get him to tell you how he's feeling and what's bothering him. And he might say, I don't know, or I don't want to talk about it, or he just shrugs his shoulders. And it's important to just say, well, I'm here for you when you want to talk about it, uh, rather than pushing him to talk about it now if he doesn't want to, because that'll stress him out even more. And then when he does come to you, and most kids will eventually, uh, especially when they're five, six, seven, eight years old, make sure that you do talk to them and not say, well, I'm too busy, I can't talk now. A lot of times that happens. And if you really are too busy and can't talk now, let's let's talk about a time we can talk and, and make a, a time to get together and let the child know that, that you'll be there then. Uh, it's very important that the child have that sense of security that, that you will talk to him about it when he is ready. Um, now, what do you do about the stress test? Again, um, what is it about the test that bothered you? Uh, for example, he might uh, he might say, you know, I, I I didn't know the answers to the questions. I'm going to fail. I'm going to, you know, but that doesn't usually happen until kids are a little older. 
um, and then find out, well, what happened? Uh, did you study enough for the exam? Did you know the material? What can you do next time so you'll know the material? And, mm-hmm. you know, children love to plan their day. Uh, sure. You know, instead of you're not going out with your friends until you get your homework done. Uh, and, instead of saying, let's plan out the day uh, from the day, the minute you leave school to the time you go to bed. You can draw it out on a piece of paper. Right. You know, and let the child decide, is he going to play with his friends and then do his homework or do his homework and then play with his friends? Uh, he's got to have time for what he has to do and learn how to make time to include what, oh, he, wants what he wants to do. to do. Sure. All right, let me ask you something that, that comes up a lot more these days than it used to, I don't know, even, even five or six years ago, that the issue of self-control and self-esteem and praise that it, it just you know there's this whole thing about telling kids that they can do whatever they want and that they're fantastic and they're wonderful and there seems to be some research that's showing that that's not really the best idea that's true uh you can overpraise a child i talked to a mother once who said her parents always told her how wonderful she was and how good she was and how talented she was and they thought they were, you know, making her feel good. But the reality was that she was afraid to, to do anything. She was frozen because she was afraid she'd fail. And then she was afraid her parents would be disappointed. And uh, so overpraise, you know, first of all, it's not genuine, and kids know that. And, uh, you know, you just uh, ask the child how he feels and let him tell you rather than you're telling him how he feels. And and then you can talk about whatever he says, you can pick up on that. And he might say, you know, I feel good about it, and then say, oh, yeah, you did a very good job. Um, but if you say, you know, all these type really extreme uh, compliments, uh, either comes off as not genuine or makes the child feel threatened. Yeah. All right, let me ask you a little bit about some of the solutions. And you've got the book divided into parts about, handling problems, nurturing relationships, and uh, dealing with feelings. So talked a little bit about feelings, but I want to get into some of the specifics. And, I'm, you know, there's bullying is a, is a big deal these mm. days, whether it's online or in yep. person. And I want to have you talk a little bit about both sides of that, about a child who is the victim, the victim. of a bully and how you, we can help this child deal with that if, if, it, if, it's, we're, if we're actually going to do it unless, it, you know, Taking some you other know, extreme I had measures. A, uh, an eight-year-old who, um, whose mother, who who was called Bacon uh, at school because he was overweight, and he that really bothered him. And the mother would say, "Well, tell the teacher, or uh, tell him you don't like it, or just walk away." And the parents doing all the thinking and all the talking, and the children kept calling him Bacon. After about six weeks of uh, learning how to problem solve. Um, and, you know, being asked these kinds of questions, um, the child was saying, one day they go, bacon, bacon, and he looks at him and he pauses and he says, yeah, and I sizzle, I sizzle. <laughs> and the kids were so taken aback by that that they never perceived him as weak anymore. You know, the, the victim is often the victim because they're perceived as weak. When he gave that response, they liked this kid and he became one of their friends and four years later he was doing very well in school and was very popular uh what a 
a different outcome from a child who's, you know, told what to do, tries it or doesn't try it, and doesn't get the problem solved. Because yeah. when it's the child's idea, if the mother had even said, tell him you sizzle, you know, it wouldn't have had the same uh, impact. Uh, even So again, it isn't the content, it's the process of mm-hmm. who's doing the thinking. And, right. and, and how does he feel about a solution that's successful? And how about the other side of this, though? Now, you know, if you're a parent and you're paying attention, and I know that a lot of a lot of kids, when they're bullying other kids, are kind of playing out what their parents are doing, what they see at home. But if you happen to see your child behaving in a bully-like way, how do you help with that? What's what's the way that we go about encouraging them to look for other ways to express their anger or whatever it is? Exactly. Um, and this is obviously a very uh, uh, important problem today. Um, and the more we uh, bully them, so to speak, by punishing them or telling them what to do or yelling at them or isolating them or sending them the time out, the more angry and frustrated they get, and, and it doesn't really do any good. Uh, so, again, we engage in what I call dialoguing, which is these questions are, I call dialoguing because they're two-way conversation. It isn't Everything else is a monologue. And when the child is involved in the conversation, he's much more likely to, uh, you know, respond. And there was another child in in, uh, fifth grade who was the bully. And the parents said, well, why do you have a need to, to, you know, uh, bully other children? And he said, because they don't like me. And I want to be, I want them to be my friend. And that's how they think, some of these kids. And so the mother said, well, what happens when you you know, yell at them and threaten them and bully them. Uh, well, they, they run away. Well, is that what you want to happen? No. Can you think of something different to do so that won't happen? And he paused, and it didn't happen right away, but uh, in time he, he came to the conclusion that if I don't behave that way, they might not run away from me. And so they had another dialogue, Uh, a little bit later, and he said, you know, uh, if I want to be their friend, maybe I can be their friend, and they'll be my friend too. And and he behaved very differently after that. Mm. And the mother told me that simple little conversation not only changed his behavior, but he did better in school after that academically. Wow. All right. So let's, I think we have time for uh, one, one more short one. What about a kid who does not seem to understand health issues and eats terrible food and, you know, you, you can control what the kids are eating at home, but you can't control after a little while what they're eating outside the home. How do we get them to take charge of that? Well, again, it's a matter of getting them to understand potential consequences. And, you know, you can guide a behavior. Uh, you can guide a child to thinking without giving them the answer. Um, you know, and if they say, if you say, what might happen if you eat, uh, you know, potato chips and chocolate cake and, and, you know, all those foods that you eat that aren't good for you, uh, what do you think could happen? And, uh, they might say, I don't know. Now, I don't know either means I don't really know, or I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) You don't know which one. Uh, say, well, you know, is it possible that you might um, not feel good in any ways if you don't eat food that's good for you? Uh, in what ways might you not feel good? 
and then the child might start thinking about that without saying, well, you know, you're going to gain weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's again, it's a problem solving. Right. And then say, well, can you think of foods that you can eat that you might like that might not make make you gain weight? Uh, you know, it's again, it's right. it's asking questions rather than telling the child. That's that's the key to problem-solving thinking. Letting the child tell you instead of you telling him. And it works from as early as age four. And our research took us through the preteen years. And it works with adults, too, by the way. I could give you some examples of that. Well, to find out how that works, you're going to have to pick up the book. It's called Thinking Parent, Thinking Child, Turning Everyday Problems into Solutions, the second edition. It's by Myrna Schur. Now, interestingly, the book is not available in bookstores. It's only available on Amazon as a paperback or a Kindle book, or it's at your website, right, Myrna? What's the website? My website is www.thinkingchild.com. Sounds great. Thanks, Myrna. Thanks, Armin. I really appreciate this. Dear John, I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is serious, and I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to when you checked on me? I don't want to leave. But remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range today. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Hello, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, founder of MrDad.com. You know, summer is just around the corner, and of course, that means that I'm getting a lot of questions about teens and summer jobs, and here's one from an actual teen. Dear Mr. Dad, I want to get a job this summer, but my parents are refusing to give me permission. They say I'm too young, but I disagree. I'm turning 15 a week before school ends, and some of my friends have had summer jobs for a few years. I'm jealous that they have their own money to spend and don't have to ask their parents for it, which I hate doing. What can I do to convince my parents to let me get a job? Well, you know, you got me convinced. Your desire to find work and the fact that you're already thinking about it months in advance are clear signs that you are plenty old enough and mature enough to handle a summer job. I guarantee that parents all over the country are listening to this and wishing that their teenager or older child who's still living at home would ask the same thing. That said, your parents may have a point. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, the minimum age for working outside of school hours is 14. But in most states, if you're under 16, you need to get a work permit from your school before you can get a job, even when school's not in session. Certain other age limits may kick in depending on the type of job you're doing and how many hours you'll be doing it. So check with your school guidance counselor. Now, assuming you're on solid legal ground age-wise, sit down with your parents and talk with them about why you want a summer job in the first place and the types of jobs you're most interested in applying for. Ask them what their hesitation is and listen carefully. Maybe they're worried about your safety, either on the job or getting yourself there and back. Those are perfectly reasonable concerns for parents to have, so it'll be up to you to deal with them. You might agree to work only during daylight hours or to look for jobs that you can easily get to and get back from safely. Your parents may have other worries as well. 
judging from how much thought and planning you've put into your summer job plans, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you're a driven straight-A student and that you put a lot of pressure on yourself to succeed. If that's true, and I say this as the father of a child who was like that in high school, your parents may feel that you need a break from work and that you should use your summer as a time to unwind and relax. Another reasonable concern, so you should spend some time thinking about how to assure them that you're giving yourself enough downtime to enjoy the summer. If your parents need a little bit more convincing, here are a few ways that having a part-time job are good for you. It'll help you build competence, independence, and self-esteem. It'll also make you even more responsible than you already are. You'll learn a lot of useful skills, such as how to follow instructions, get along with bosses and coworkers, deal with the public, and manage your money. You'll learn something about the value of hard work, and you'll appreciate everything you spend your paychecks on because you'll have earned it, not because mom and dad gave it to you. Once you get your parents on board, which I know you will, don't let yourself get consumed by making money. Balance in life is essential, especially for someone your age, and that means leaving room for family and friends and plenty of downtime to just hang out and be a kid. If you've got a question or a comment for us here at Positive Parenting, send it to us through our website, mrdad.com. That is also where you can catch up on past episodes that you missed and find all sorts of other great content. It's all at mrdad.com. But sit back, relax. There's more Positive Parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey, there he is. How's it going? I'm having a stroke. Are you going to shake my hand or what? I'm having a stroke. Wow, you're not even moving your arm. I'm having a stroke. Are you okay? I'm having a stroke. Your face looks weird, too. I'm having a stroke. Are you having a seizure or something? I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. I'm having a stroke. You just need to know the sudden signs. Look for FAST, F-A-S-T, F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, or S, speech difficulty, then T, time. Time to call 911 immediately because the sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in their recovery. Know the sudden signs. Face, arm, speech, time. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for sticking with us. She comes home from school and heads straight for her room without saying a word, slamming the door behind her. She neglects her homework. She texts all night and has a meltdown over yet another crisis with her friends or a boy. When you dare to ask her a question, she explodes. On good days, that's life with a typical teenage daughter. No wonder so many moms and dads feel discouraged, exasperated, and exhausted. 
it's perfectly understandable that millions of mothers and fathers are at wit's end, struggling with their volatile teens, but also being unprepared for the tangle of emotions that it triggers. Well, it's no wonder that parents lash out when teens push their buttons. But overreacting or freezing up doesn't feel good, and it doesn't solve problems or build the relationship that you want. If you've got a teenage daughter, or you know somebody's teenage daughter, or you're in danger of having one sometime soon, you're definitely going to want to stay tuned for this part of today's show. We're going to be talking with a family therapist who has repaired thousands of mother-daughter relationships, and she's got a proven method for de-escalating scenes, establishing a calmer center, and reconnecting with teens. Anyone can learn this method, she says, no matter how anxious or frazzled you may feel now. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll start talking about how to reduce conflict and reconnect with your teenage daughter when Positive Parenting continues right after this. When it comes to saving money, don't act like a baby. Goo goo gaga. Be the boss and make a budget. I'm the boss, baby. You're the boss of me. I am the boss of you. Are not. M2. Are not. M2. Need a little help? Aren't you going to do any work? I'm very busy delegating. Create a personalized savings plan. We can share. You obviously didn't go to business school. And get other tools and tips at feedthepig.org. Brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Colleen O'Grady, who is the author of Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict and Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter. Colleen, thanks for joining us. Glad you're with us. I'm so glad to be here. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I think, one of the big questions here that I've got as a dad, anyway. What's the big deal with mother-daughter relationships? Why are they so problematic? <laughs> Well, I think I think moms really identify with their daughters and there is kind of an emotional connection between the mother and daughter that's that's that moms kind of hoped for when they had their little girl, but because of that closeness, it were it can go it can go south pretty quickly because we can get very reactive. Okay. How much of it do you think is competitive. And, and I'm, I'm asking this because I know in, in researching fathers and sons that right around the teenage years, dads are, you know, getting a little bit older and perhaps aren't quite as spry as they used to be. And they're seeing their son is becoming a man and he's he's out there and maybe starting to get interested in girls. And it, it kind of gets you thinking about maybe things you didn't do. And, and there can be in, in the father-son, father-teen, father-young adult relationships a, a sense of competition in a way, which if you think about it rationally, it's ridiculous, but it's it's still there. Is that still going on, or is that kind of thing going on with uh, mothers and daughters? Um, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, sometimes the mom wants their daughters to have what, what the mother didn't have. Um, they want their daughters not to make the same mistakes. Um, other times they want their daughters... Because they identify with their daughters, they want their daughters to look a certain way, act a certain way. They don't want to be embarrassed by their daughters. And so it's more about kind of identification with, with their daughter versus competition a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> Was there something else? So, 
Okay. So, so, so one of the traps that, that happens for moms is um, that moms have their agendas for their daughters. And, they, I mean, they have a, and underneath those agendas is a lot of anxiety because they worry about their future. They're going to, I'm sure, like and with fathers and sons, you worry, they worry about getting into the college, worry, worry, worry. Um, are they doing what they need to be successful? And so the agenda turns moms into kind of what I call the 24-7 monitor. And, and you're doing it out of a, a good reason. You want your daughter to be successful, but you kind of come off like super annoying because you're saying what I mean by the 24-7 monitor is, come on, you need to get up, you need to get dressed, you need to eat your breakfast, you need to get in the car, you need to get your homework done, you need to give me your phone, it's time to go to bed. And, and you're doing that out of anxiety because you want your kid to be successful. But then what happens, because moms just can get pretty wound up sometimes, is that there's not another aspect to the relationship. It becomes a lot of monitoring and less about just hanging out. Yeah. Well, how different is that, though, from the kinds of stuff that you're doing with a three-year-old or a two-year-old? I mean, it's, uh, it's the same kind of stuff, right? Get out of bed, you got to do this, you got to do that, and there's just a, a huge amount of mundane cattle herding. Right, right. But, but teenagers are, I mean, I don't think any age kid is very tolerant of that, but teenagers are even less less tolerant and I think they really want to be understood and so what's really important about my work is is helping moms reconnect with their teens and not just get you know default into being just this monitor because I mean these girls need us I mean parent teen relationships are still important actually are vital to you know to their well-being Okay. No, that, that, that's, I think that's a very important point. Talk a little bit about fear. You, you deal with that in the book quite a bit. What's, yes. the, what's the fear element here with the mother-daughter relationship? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> I think, I think you, the, the, the big fear is, that, um, is around the future, is that her daughter's not going to be okay. Okay. She, she's not going to be successful. And then there are a kajillion worries that go with that fear, you know, which um, if the daughter wears a skirt that's a little too short or a shirt that's a little bit too low, there's a fear. And then and mothers can just jump from, you know, zero to 100. A low shirt can when, when you get when you're worrying a lot can have you thinking that, oh, my God, she's going to get pregnant. And <laughs> it's a big leap, I guess, in, in somebody's mind, but I, I can see how you'd get there. Yes. That's and the so zero to one hundred part, yeah. So so let me make a distinction between I mean, there's gonna be fear that is useful that we can take action and make sure that we have our kids protected. But then um, then there is what I call the F bomb of fear. And that's like the big honking fear that really has us go offline from our higher brain and we're in more of the reactive brain. 
And when we're in that part of the brain, we do a lot of kind of compulsory type of actions that are not real helpful. Like you can feel like you're doing something when you're worrying a lot mm-hmm. or when you're losing it with your teen or when you're just going on and on in a big lecture, but really you haven't taken effective action. So, um, and when you're in big time fear, the big F bomb of fear, you only have the stress response of fight, flight, freeze. So you automatically fight with your team or you don't want to deal with it or you freeze up. So I, I help moms and, it can, and of course it can be dads too, kind of have a process of going from the F bomb and, and taking that down into kind of just a fear that can be useful mm-hmm. by seeing what needs to be done. Well, let's loop these two things that we've just been talking about together, about the, the 24-7 monitoring and, and this fear part of things. Okay. What do you do about this? I mean, how do you get yourself to a point where you're not the 24-7 monitor? I mean, how, how do you, you know, kids have to get up. they got to go to school. they they got to make their lunches and do their homework and things. So there's a certain amount of stuff that has to be done. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. So how, yeah. how do you do this? What's an alternative way of looking at it or, or okay. behaving? Well, here's really the good news, is I really believe that you can change your relationship with your teen in 15 minutes a day. And what I mean by that is if you as a parent can start to see that just hanging out, being with your teen with no agenda is so worthwhile and so productive. And so... For the moms who are like, and, and I get it, I am, I am that mom, and we do have limited time, but if you can say, all right, from 4 o'clock to 4.30, I am going to fire myself from being the 24-7 monitor, and I'm just going to be available for my team to, to just touch base with me, and I'm just going to be there to hang out. Because your team needs to know that there's times that you're just not going to always be hurting them. And so when you just even do that, the team starts to have a positive experience with you, which is just crucial. And often with the teens are what are hardwired for drama. And when they relax, they um, – they get out of the lower limbic system, and they're, they're ready to talk to you. So a lot of times it may not be convenient for you. So when you're just kind of set a time to kind of be available, when they relax, the good news is they will approach you. And sometimes we, we miss the value of it because we think, oh, my God, you need to be doing your homework. But if they're showing you this YouTube video of a cat, yeah. it's valuable. Jump on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking with Colleen O'Grady, who's the author of Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict and Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter. We are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll keep talking to Colleen about a lot of this stuff. I want to touch especially on that point that you just made about daughters being hardwired for drama. I'm Armin Brat, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. 
It only takes a minute to find out if you may have prediabetes. And you can do it at doihaveprediabetes.org. But you're probably not going to, are you? Kids, work, listening to the radio. You're busy, which is great because busy people can't get prediabetes. Oh my, I read that wrong. <laughs> they can. Should have worn my glasses. So visit doihaveprediabetes.org and take a short test because prediabetes can be reversed. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Colleen O'Grady, who's the author of Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict and Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter. So let's do go back to that point that you made. It just you, you went right by it almost, but I think it's such a big one about you have a chapter or a part of a chapter called Why Your Teenage Daughter, Why Your Daughter is Hardwired for Drama and Why It's Not Personal. So let's <laughs> let's go there. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes, I like to say that uh, a teenage daughter is a quadruple threat for drama, and and one aspect of it is the hormones. That any mother has a teenage daughter knows that the hormones are a factor. They're not the main issue, but they are there. And the main issue really is that the brain the brain is under um, construction and. And a lot of people have heard they, that the undeveloped prefrontal cortex is undeveloped until the age of 25, but we don't actually know what that means. And that's significant for two reasons. Is One is that part of the brain is responsible for um, the big picture, uh, understanding cause and effect, managing emotions, self-awareness. So a lot of things that frustrates parents is this kind of immaturity of the prefrontal cortex, which is really like, if you think of a car, it's like the brakes. Right. It's like a teenager has faulty brakes. And so what that means is that a lot of times that the teenager defaults more in into the lower brain, which is the reactive part of the brain because that part of the teenager's brain is fully developed. So that is also the part of the brain that can easily get um, <clears throat> ticked off and it goes into fight, flight, freeze. Right. All right. So uh, the, the brain stuff I, I find perfectly fascinating all the time, but I think a lot of yes. people are, are, would listen to this and say, okay, I don't really care about what's going on with brain development. Why is my daughter such a nut? And what do I do about that? <laughs> yes, yes. So yes. how do we how do we deal with? It? I mean, how do you get to the point? So I mean, it, it's helpful to understand. Okay, I see. She's her her brakes need to be adjusted okay. at some yes, point. But I can, you know, I yes, I can make this super practical. Okay. Super super. The whole point of this. <laughs> okay. Is, and this is going to save you parents so much grief. So timing is everything. If you see your teen is emotionally flooded, if they're super angry, super sad, super stressed, then that's not the time. They are, I like to think of it as they're, that the brain is like a computer. They're offline. They are offline from the higher brain. 
So any kind of reasoning is not happening because all they got is the word processor. They, they, can't, they can't access the Internet. So this is a, t- a lot of times when the kid is emotionally flooded, and I've got stories and stories and stories of, you know, the kid that comes in at 3 in the morning, and then the parent says, that's the time I'm going to give you the big lecture. Well, one, the kid's high, and, you know, two is, is you know, the parent's upset, the teen's upset, Nothing is going to be accomplished at that time. Now, here's the good news is when the teen kind of relaxes and you relax, because see, also, when we're emotionally flooded, we're offline too. So when we are more calm and the teen is calm, that is the best time to go in and have that conversation or, you know, a teaching moment with them. And it gives, so that pause, the space to calm down is just, it's crucial for both the parent and teen. And for the parent, like when you're in it, it feels like, you know, if I don't just go after it in this moment that I just caught my kid doing something, then I'm a terrible parent. It it feels almost primal, but if you can wait then you can get a strategy um, for what you're going to do about it. And because discipline right. is really about teaching. And it sometimes it take, we have to calm down to really know what we, what is that consequence? What do our teens really need to learn in that moment? Well, don't you think that there should be something in the moment though? At, le- at least to something like, you know what, I'm, I'm really ticked off here, but let's talk about this tomorrow. I mean, so, yes, so that there's yes. at least something that, that acknowledges oh. the, the issue? Yes, thanks, Armin. Yes, so what I, I, I say in the moment is, is you want to just contain the moment. It's a containing. It's not the lecture. So it's like, okay, you need to go to your room. You need to give me the keys of the car. We'll talk about this tomorrow. Like you just contain the situation. Okay, that's an important thing. Yes, so thank you for bringing that up. Okay. Uh, so how do you discipline a teenage daughter then? So what, what is that conversation in the morning? Yeah. Well, and this, you know, and I'm sure you have a lot to say, say about this too, but I think when we're upset, we just say, we can say things like, you're grounded forever, you're never going to drive again, and things that we can't actually enforce. But it takes really a lot of time to think about, what do they need? And I do have a a chapter in my book that just kind of gives you a menu of things that you can think about. So, for example, it's like, like what is, it's like different in every situation. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, well, um, l- let me give you a specific situation because I think this is something that pretty much every parent who has a teenager has had to deal with, the I hate you. Mm, because yeah. I mean, you know, which is, is so hurtful, and yeah. they clearly do Either they are doing it deliberately because they know that it's hurtful or they just don't understand. I think it's kind of a combination of both. But the, the natural reaction for, is, is going to be to say, well, screw you. But mm-hmm. we're obviously not going to do that or shouldn't do that. 
uh, you know, or you, you're so ungrateful, can't you recognize all the wonderful things that I've done for you? What, what's a way to deal with that? Yeah. Yeah, and that's—well, uh, I've had it happen to me when my daughter was probably 12. Um, when it first happens, when they first say those words to you, I mean, it just—it knocks the wind out of you. And then later you find what it really means is I'm really just— the teen really means, you know, I'm ticked off that I didn't get to do what I wanted to do. So, but what I think is helpful, I think um, when I, I think in that, like a situation like that, I would go back or I, I've done this and uh, when she's calmed down and I, I'd said, you know, that's just not okay to say that. And, and then I think it's, important to teach them how to apologize and so with my daughter it was like okay I'm sorry and then I'm saying that's actually not an apology you know so I'm sorry and and how can you own your behavior in that and own the the how that affected me and the consequence to that behavior that needs to go in the apology and then, um, and then I think it's really important to make amends. So, so I would talk to her about, okay, you know, thinking about our relationship. What are some things that you do appreciate about me, or, or like I, I, I would have her write what was true for her and and then i would say to her i want you to make a gesture to show me that you are sorry and that and you and I'm, that you understand the effect that this had on me yes yeah and so because i think it's important for them to take action mm-hmm. and so in this situation, my daughter did something was way better than I could ever imagine. Is she sent her, the dog in my room, and the dog had a piece of paper, you know, um, curled up. And in the curled up piece of paper, I took it out, and it was a note from my daughter. And it, and she sent me on kind of this treasure hunt through the house. And it said, "I'm so sorry for saying I hate you." And, you know, and in the kitchen you might find something yummy or whatever. And so so she had these notes in all the different parts of the house saying all the things she appreciated about me. Wow. Colleen O'Grady's the author of Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict and Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter. Colleen, what's your website? It's ColleenOgrady.com, and that's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-O-G-R-A-D-Y.com. Okay, great. Thanks for joining us. It was great to have you. Great to have you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.